welcome to Inside Track from Trustonic. This podcast brings together some of the leading minds from the mobile and automotive security industries to really get under the skin of how those worlds have been shaped, what drives them today, and what we can expect in the future. So please take a listen as we go beyond the headlines with the experts and market makers in their field. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Inside Track. My name is Andrew Till, and I lead the automotive practice here at Trustonic. And I'm delighted to be joined for this episode by Frost & Sullivan's very own Frank Levique. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we'll be exploring areas such as next generation uh, in-vehicle experiences, the role of security, and also some of the business models and how OEMs can potentially monetize the value of security in vehicles moving forwards. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get straight into the content. Thank you very much for joining us. To start off with, um, I think it would be great for our audience if you could just share a, a little bit about your background and also some of the exciting things that Frost & Sullivan is doing in the automotive industry. Thanks, Andrew. So Frank Levesque, I'm um, French, uh, educated in the UK, living in Germany for the past 15 years. I, I joined Frost & Sullivan uh, 20 years ago. Um, I'm one of the, the, the founding partners of the, of the mobility group within Frost & Sullivan. Uh, and what we do at Frost is, is really, you know, focusing on business intelligence to support our clients and advisory to support our clients to grow. That's basically what we do uh, as a business. And with that, you know, a very strong focus on what I call innovation and transformational innovation uh, in particular. And there's loads of that in the automotive space at the moment, for sure. Thank you, Frank. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. Um, one of the areas that I, I really wanted to get your insights on is around the, the HMI. I mean, for me, the HMIs inside vehicles over the last five years have just radically transformed. We've seen a focus on the, the quality and the speed, um, the move to high definition uh, displays, et cetera. And of course, you know, new technologies coming in like Android and uh, screen mirroring technologies. What do you see as some of the next wave of innovation and new technologies that will, will be introduced into vehicles over the coming years? HMI is a, is a great topic, first of all, because um, I think, you know, the reality is, I think the automotive industry was taking a, a but I would say is a, is a wrong path in the sense that it was becoming increasingly complex to operate a vehicle. Um, and we always need to remember that, you know, cars are being driven by you know, people from, you know, 17 years old, uh, depending on the countries, uh, to 88, 90 years old. Um, and, and we need to cater for that. And we were getting into a situation where, you know, operating a vehicle was as difficult as operating, um, you know, a, a Boeing 747. So, you know, we can't go in that, in that direction. And I think technology developments has uh, demonstrated or allowed to, to become leaner in the way that um, uh, drivers and passengers are able to operate the functions of the vehicle. And in many ways, I would say Tesla has shown a direction of a very lean uh, interface from a, a user experience perspective that um, others are um, trying to replicate, integrating the, the specifics of their own brand, of course. Uh, and that's, that, I think, is, is taking a, a you know, the right move to simplify um, on one hand, but also make um, the interface a lot more intuitive. Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree. One of the, one of the areas I think is becoming 
very interesting now is the use of voice. Finally, we have voice platforms that are delivering on the on the promise. And I think just looping back to your comments about 18-year-olds to 80-year-olds, um, voice can provide a, a great mechanism to discover the new features and the new services. And I think the other the other area that I'd, I'd love to get your insights on are, are the idea that the HMI now is being targeted at both the driver and the passenger and, and the ability to provide the different experiences. So it doesn't have to be that one size fits all inside the vehicle. And it's interesting comments, you know, that voice is, is becoming more prominent, certainly. And, you know, we, we've been in this industry for long enough. And, you know, first it was just buttons and uh, intelligent buttons. And then we had, um, you know, screens, intelligent screens, and we have voice and we will have um, virtual reality in, inside the car at, at, some, at some point as well, coming, coming and, and helping us as a virtual assistants and, and so on, allogram um, that will come. It's important to to, um, to to provide an interface for the driver and the passenger, especially as we are moving towards um, autonomous. You know that that uh, reflection is important, uh, but even more if we are considering the necessity for the industry uh, to um, increase the number of people per cars. And that's an important comment here because we are uh, fighting as an industry to reduce um, inefficiencies. And you know, having 1.1 person in cars, um, you know, driving to Paris in the morning, is the most inefficient way of commuting that one can think of. And unless we tackle that. Even if we go electric, we are not going to actually change the problem of congestion. So I'm going back to the fact that we need to cater uh, interface, content, convenience, infotainment uh, for the driver, but also for the passengers. So they have a good experience inside the vehicle. I, I, I completely agree. You know, I think one of the interesting developments I think we saw last year with the the launch of platforms like Android Automotive 11 was the frameworks for recognizing and being able to switch between different user profiles and um, some architecture in there for having different audio zones inside the inside the vehicle so that you know, potentially you could have different people engaging with a digital agent and each being able to do that independently. So I, I think we are starting to see that at the platform level, these kinds of issues are being thought about and taken to, taken into consideration. I guess that leads to a, a challenge. I, you know, I really like this idea of will we see more people sharing vehicles and addressing the congestion challenges? But does that mean that the the usability of the experiences and the security when you when you start having more than one person and maybe somebody you don't know in the vehicle ride sharing with you? Does that create a trade-off between the, you know, the usability of the features and the security that will will need to be uh, provided? And particularly, I think now that we're starting to see new industry regulation coming in, requiring more and more robust security from uh, 2024 onwards. Um, so, so this is something very, you know, as everybody who knows me, it's, you know, security is very close and dear to my uh, to my heart. Um, and this always seems to be the perennial problem of. Do I, if, if I make something safe or, or secure, do I 
as a byproduct, make it unusable? Does it have to be unusable in order to be robustly secure? Andrew, you know, you know more than me, but you know, the, the automotive industry tends to go the 150%, right? Uh, or 200%. That's the, the engineering world that the automotive industry is born with. The question uh, in my mind is, you know, to, to what extent can we actually secure? At which point uh, security is sufficient? Um, almost a philosophical question rather than a, a scientific one in, in reality. But, you know, it's an interesting topic. Um, as security a price? You know, safety in, in the past, uh, we've seen with Euro NCAP and development of safety standards that, you know, in North America, uh, consumers were willing to pay for additional safety. In Europe, a little less. So you need to also cater for cultural differences uh, on, on, this, on this very topic. And I can imagine that security and cybersecurity, because that's, you know, that's where we are, we are going and that's where the, the focus is going, may follow uh, or not uh, a similar path. I'm very glad you mentioned Eurolink. I'm going to come back to that in a moment because I do think there's a lot of learnings there. Um, one of the one of the areas that I've been thinking about is you know what's happened in the banking world, and I'd say also in the in the in the PC world, but in the banking world in particular, I think people have accepted that there are good compromises that don't unduly impact usability, but significantly enhance the protection that's being provided. So. You know, it would be very interesting to understand how many of the people listening to the podcast, uh, you know, use banking applications, but don't use biometric authentication. Yeah. On the other side, you know, <laughs> you, you, you're unlikely to die from um, a cybersecurity in a, in a banking environment. And that's what the automotive industry is, is, is worried about. At the, at, the, at the same time, you know, that uh, cybersecurity in the automotive industry um, has that risk associated and more than that risk, that liability. Um, and who's liable at that point? Which is what the industry has to, to find an answer for in one way or another in this situation. Who's actually going to be liable? I think that's the key question. I, I do think that as we see this play out, what it will do is forge different relationships um, because you can't really tackle the liability challenge without everybody working together and having common understandings. And I think moving, you know, one of the spirits of some of the legislation coming in is, is to have security designed in and not, not to really have it as a tick box feature. And I think that does, when you design security in, um, that allows you to, to provide protections and mechanisms, but without the undue impact on the uh, the higher level experiences that you're then delivering. So you are able to, say, optimize the, uh, the amount of uh, processor time taken or memory that you need to perform operations, et cetera. You can put in various different types of hardware accelerators these days to support that. But when you're adding something in, when you're retrofitting afterwards, it's very, very difficult to, to retrofit security and not in then impact the uh, the experiences that are being ultimately delivered through to the vehicle user, and I, and I do think there's an issue there. You're absolutely right. That you know nobody has died from from their banking app being compromised. It may give you um, you know some very unpleasant shocks if it happens, but um, it is ultimately not life or death. 
And I do think it went when we come into the vehicle that if the security, you know, does make the rest of the system unusable, then we we enter into a different set of problems, which are driver distraction related. Um, and unfortunately, we know from many, many other industries that, you know, you, you only need things to be, you know, a couple of hundred milliseconds delayed um, in providing a response back to, to the user for people to start perceiving it's slow, it's clunky, it, it's not usable, and, um, and there are negative perceptions. But uh, so on the flip side, I think if the industry is working together and you take a designed-in philosophy, then at that point, you know, you, uh, you're able to implement an awful lot of very robust protection that, that can support, I think, the uh, really the, the next generation of services. I'm thinking of things like in-vehicle payments to support you know, the, the, your vehicle being able to pay for parking, tolling, simplifying, removing friction. Um, in those areas or, you know, some of the next generation content and entertainment services where if you're streaming high definition content into the vehicle, you will need enhanced security as required by the content providers. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that the experience has to be degraded if it's, if it's designed in at the early, at the early part of the uh, development phase. So I think it, I think it will be a, an, an interesting area. One of the reasons I wanted to come back to the Euro NCAP is I think what's happened there is the industry figured out a way of saying we have to make all these investments that are being mandated by regulators. And we've come up with a scheme that is very, very easy. It's, you know, is it one star? Is it five star? Pretty much anyone walking in off the street can look at that scheme and understand what it means to them. And they they then equate value to that. Um, and I think I'll, I'll take my own personal circumstance, you know, as a, as a parent, do I want a car that has anything less than four or five stars on the NCAP rating? No, because I would feel bad for, for my children when they're in that vehicle. So I, I, it does make me wonder if what we also need from a security standpoint is a similar type of rating that allows the, the OEMs to extract value from the investments that they're, that they're making into, into providing those protections, many of which are often um, frankly, they're, they're not seen by, you know, and good security, you never see it. It's the worst kind of demo because nothing changes. But, it, but at the moment, I think the industry is struggling to monetize the, the investments it's making in this very critical area. It's, it's interesting. I, a couple of points here that, that I find interesting. Um, it, first of all, you know, I... You know the, the late John McAfee has, has has demonstrated that security can be can be priced right. But um, you know again the what is the liability and, and sort of risk associated needs to be to be taken into consideration. The question for me is you know what is the fundamental fundamental security that has you know um, life and death uh, sort of risk associated, uh, and maybe you have some element of additional security that will be monetizable. In some ways, um, I do believe in that, and I think the industry should should look into that. The second point I wanted to make is the thing with Euro NCAP is you know, for safety, it was relatively you know simple in a sense, right? It was to a very large extent uh, mechanical, electronic related to towards the latest uh, levels, uh, but. Here, if we are going towards cybersecurity, we are going after a moving goalpost. And that is that is the the, the challenge uh, in my mind associated to to, to cybersecurity generally, but most uh, importantly for the automotive industry, which is what we are looking at here. Hence, the necessity to have a vehicle that you can over time 
upgrade, improve continuously throughout the life cycle of that vehicle. It's unheard of of, a, of, a, of, a, of an industry with um, a vehicle or a, a product of, of that price, with that amount of electronic, um, with that amount of software lines that basically, once you get it out of the production line, it does not change. That assumes that basically 10 years later, that vehicle is actually safe as it was when it came out of the, of the production line, considering that all those software lines were actually written three years before that. That's not, that, that's not right. So I think the industry is making a, a very, very strong step towards redesigning the electronic architecture and the software architecture in the vehicle uh, to support that uh, upgradeability to support that security challenges that they are facing associated with that. Um, and that opens up, and that's where it's getting really exciting for me, looking at growth. It opens up into uh, areas where vehicle manufacturers will be able to change their business model, where the, the value creation is not just happening when the vehicle is being sold, but the value creation is taking place throughout the life cycle of the vehicle. To improve safety, may not have a, a specific uh, monetization capacity on that point, but opens up to bring additional features around performance, around convenience, around experience that are really exciting in my mind. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think I think software updating of the vehicle is one of the big developments over the last five years that has really exploded from being a you know a nice kind of concept into something that everybody is now saying yes, this is. This is fundamentally what we need to do to, you know, both protect the vehicles moving forwards. Because you're you're absolutely right. The unfortunately the uh, the threat landscape doesn't stay still, um, and it advances quite quite rapidly. But at the same time, I, I think for you know OEMs and tier ones that that are able to build the trust in these areas with their consumers and provide those software updates over the air, then uh, you know they will be able to. To figure out how to keep pace and of course the other bit on the back end of this now is is the use of digital twins and being able to create models you know on the cloud platforms and do the kind of testing and the kind of penetration testing and simulations that five ten years ago we could only dream about being able to do so so when that software is is now deployed to the vehicle i think the testing and the the robustness of the software it's improving all the time um uh, versus what we've seen maybe in some of the other industries where there's been a view that sometimes software updates are um, you know provided to consumers for mass testing rather than you know as a uh, as a fully golden release. But I, I, one of the interesting areas I think when we get into that and that, that you sort of touched on is providing the new features and and you know and does that provide a way of um, also monetizing some of the enhancements in security that are being delivered down to the vehicle. So you have the existing features that you're keeping up to date and the systems that you're protecting, but then over time, you're able to deploy more and more capability. And I do think there's an interesting opportunity and we're starting to see some of the OEMs bring this in with charging for, for software updates. So I'm giving you, you know, maybe on its electric vehicle, a, a, a better 0 to 60 performance, but you will pay for that. But at the same time, I, I can use the, you know that cost uh, that I'm I'm charging somebody who wants that level of performance or experience 
to also cover the uh, the, the security updates that we're we're pushing out. And I think the other the other area that will be quite interesting around this is whether whether OEMs start to bring in third parties and and enable them to deploy applications and services in containers, um, maybe inside the uh, the vehicle software architecture. And again, um, you know, security doesn't necessarily have to be all delivered by the OEM, but you can work with third parties. You mentioned McAfee, and they're clearly very well known for their antivirus and other software uh, protection mechanisms. But, you know, we saw this in the mobile world that there was a very healthy market for third-party security solutions to be delivered. It, you know, the, the handset vendors figured out they didn't have to try and, and provide every single bit of security, and some people worried about it more than others. And therefore, those that, that had a higher concern typically were buying aftermarket third-party apps and services in the same way that we, I would say, generally we see in the enterprise world and in the, the, the home computer world, where not everybody buys security, but every every machine ships with a basic level, and then you're able to upgrade to the level that you're comfortable with as a uh, as an individual. That's what I was saying earlier, right? Is to have a, a, a basic fundamental security that is provided to all, um, and then that capacity to upgrade based on utilization, based on your personal circumstances, based on what you're as a consumer worried about is important. I wouldn't say, however, that this is the most exciting part from a monetization perspective, right? It's something that is fundamental. We need to have it. Uh, I think there's opportunities to monetize with potential certification uh, programs associated and so on. Uh, But for me, you know, that upgradability, that um, sort of capacity to bring improvement over the air uh, or the... Uh, sort of value associated to that uh, capacity goes far beyond that, right? Um, research shows that the, the average consumers uh, only see uh, 30% of all the features that they have actually available in their cars, which, you know, is a demonstration of, a, of a, uh, the inability of the industry to actually cater or tailor the, the, the solution to the individual. That ability to, to tailor comes with the ability to monetize further. And that's what we need to understand. You know, pushing tremendous amount of features into a box, uh, hoping that, you know, some will actually find them is extremely inefficient uh, in a digital world. And that's what, what this, this capacity actually provides. Um, and that's where it's, where it's really exciting. And that will come with an entire IT infrastructure that needs to be deployed and redefined inside the vehicle, deployed outside the vehicle and um, redefined inside the vehicle to actually uh, allow for that. Um, And payment, and I know this is one of the the topics for you, uh, Andrew, you know, that those payment mechanism to get those um, uh, new features, either on a pay-per-use or on a monthly basis, and of vehicles life uh, basis, um, these payment mechanisms need to be put in place, need to be secured in a way that consumers feel at ease with. Absolutely. I, I think there's two really critical things you've just touched on there, Frank. Um, the first is, you know, in other industries we've seen, and, and you know, I, I will use the iPhone as an example. I was working in the mobile industry when it launched. Um, the industry obsessed at that point in time with the mobile industry 
that the iPhone didn't have Java. And, and, you know, Apple at that point in time did a fantastic job of saying, let's strip away. We're not going to play this feature game. Let's strip away everything people are not using that just clutters the interface, that slows the processor down and focus on then really delighting people. And a phrase I like to use, uh, you know, I wish I'd invented this, but instead of talking about, um, you know, minimum viable product, you know, let's talk about minimum lovable product or minimum lovable experience. What is the minimum I need to do to make somebody just be amazed by the product or the feature or the experience that I have just delivered to them? And I think that that was something we saw. It wasn't called that at the time, but I think what what we saw back in the um, sort of the mid 2000s was the, the first instance of people saying, what is the minimum lovable thing that I deliver here that, that really gets people engaged with this product um, and, and breaking that that concept that you have to constantly always add more and more and more features, because I, I would agree with you. I'd say it's not just automotive. It's many industries where you have a, you know, you, you don't have enough time at the point of sale to show and demonstrate all of the, the features and, and what is demonstrated in typically in retail and now on online is, is really what people get familiar with and, and use. Um, and so I think that that is a hugely important point in, in in, in enhancing the overall user experience moving forwards. And, and let's face it, Andrew, is, you know, the, 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 the fact is when the vehicle comes out, when you buy your vehicle from the dealership, you have a specific usage in mind. that is linked to that specific time that you, you, you live in. Two years later, you may have changed job. You may have um, a new kid. The, you know, things are changing, but your car is staying the same. Right, and you've not you're not able to actually upgrade and align that vehicle to your new life. That's what what this new capacity actually allows. Absolutely, and that's where I think adding the adding in vehicle payment mechanisms. You know, one obvious area is to say we have enough sensors in the vehicle to understand how somebody's life is changing. You know, the pressure. I start to detect that the pressure sensors in the rear seats are going down on a regular basis. I'm giving lifts or maybe I've got a child seat now being deployed in there. I, I combine that with the audio is being played at a little bit a lower, lower volume level and the type of music that I'm listening to is, uh, you know, I'm suddenly listening to lullabies instead of, um, you know, indie rock. It's telling me something about what's happening with that person's lifestyle. So the ability of them being able to reach back out and, and propose a set of different feature packages and options or even different you know, optimizations in the layout of the HMI to, to recognize that, you know, maybe your short was as simple as we're going to change your shortcuts because we've identified this, or as you, as you say, you know, completely different experiences being deployed to the same vehicle and not worrying about traditional segmentation models, but just recognizing somebody is moving through a life stage, but we have a way of detecting that, offering them an enhancement and monetizing on the back of that. I, I think is it's a radically different way, um, but I think it will be you know a, a mechanism where you take full advantage of all the digital services now available. 
Or, or very, very simple. You know, I like to, to, to illustrate very simple features, right? Is the, the idea of, you know, during the week, you go, you go, you go to, to the office, you have a car, you, you know, your average speed is 40 kilometers per hour. Um, you know, that's what you need. Um, but at the weekend, you go to Cornwall, you know, you want to have a bit of, of fun. Um, and, and, and basically, you know, all you need is a little bit more power just because you are, you're going to take the motorway, you're going to, to be, uh, you know, in an hilly environment and so on and so forth. You can have an extra, you know, 40, 60 horsepower that's just software, right? Or you go on a holiday, you go on a holiday with a family, you were taking the, the, the example earlier, Andrew. You know, imagine you go like many people uh, in Europe, taking a caravan uh, with a kid's a wife. Uh, and, and basically, um, what do you have at that point? You, you may have a, you know, um, a Euro NCAP uh, well-rated vehicle. Uh, but as soon as you have the caravan at the back, actually, you, you, you've, you've taken something on, on that vehicle that actually changes the dynamics of the vehicle. That the vehicle doesn't recognize and your vehicle is actually not really safe and not as safe as it was without the, car the caravan. Right. And um, all that it needs is actually a software update for the specific of that of that trip that actually recognize the, the, the caravan, the, the, the weight that is on the back of the vehicle. Um, and that is something that. You know, consumers with caravans who do that trip, you know, three times a year um, may take, especially if you go with your family. Absolutely. And I think, again, this, this comes into looking at how people are now leading their lives, not just when they're in the, the vehicle, but what's going on around them um, and, and how that may influence their requirements and their needs. Uh, you know, when they are driving or, or even in a future autonomous vehicle, when they're just a passenger, but I, and I think that's part of, you know, we touched on at the beginning, things like digital assistance in the vehicle. And that's where I think there's a tremendous opportunity. Those assistants are not just present in the vehicle, they're present in our homes, in our office, on our mobile devices. So that opportunity of, of gaining those learnings and being able to say, how is that relevant? How can I improve the experience and the offering? And again, I think, you know, as you say, from a, when you're attaching something to your vehicle, you know, also from a security standpoint, increasingly those connections are no longer just a tow bar, they're, they're electronic as well. So you also have to then think about is what I'm attaching safe or if I'm connecting to the smart city grid or smart infrastructure uh, on, a, on a motorway or a freeway, you know, how do I how do I know that I can trust the infrastructure around me and make sure that if it's sending me updates for speed and traffic that, that I can trust those? So I think there's a lot where, you know, moving forwards, the industry will be able to radically rethink how it's delivering, but, but also really, you know, make people feel like that that vehicle is perfectly tuned to them. It's in sync with them, the life that they're living at that, uh, at that point in time. And, that, and that's where UX, and you, you know, to circle back on, on the first topic, that's where UX is actually so important, right? Because in reality, we are going to, create visibility for these, you know, um, this vast amount of features that consumers will actually have access to, uh, unless we make it convenient, intuitive, and easy to use, we're actually going to make it worse. So that UX uh, experience uh, is, go is going to become a core topic uh, for the automakers to ensure that their customers, the, 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 the owner or the users of the vehicle, are able to make the most 
of these new features available on demand without the frustration of, you know, uh, having to, to search for hours for what they want. Absolutely. And that ultimately, I think, getting that uh, equation right will, will build the loyalty and it will, it will also feed the desire of, of, you know, all consumers. And again, I think not just traditional passenger vehicles, but commercial vehicles as well to engage in the services and to, to create those ongoing lifetime revenues off the vehicle that are predominantly digitally uh, based. And that's, that's what we face everywhere, right? We, we face that digital experience, that, that uh, capacity to upgrade uh, on every single part of our life that is digitalized or is electronic based. Uh, even your fridge today, you can, you can, you can upgrade, right? Uh, so it's, it's, it's a bit frustrating uh, in many ways that you can't upgrade your car. And just to maybe finish on our point of data, we did a study that we are actually in the process of, of updating right now on uh, from consumers across North America and Europe. But the, the one that we did two years ago actually highlighted that 88%, almost 90% of consumers actually are interested in uh, being able to purchase features on demand after having bought the vehicle. 90% find it normal that they can, they will be able to do that. Uh, so this is a missing opportunity um, from, from, a, from an industry perspective, in my mind. And we are just updating this study at the moment. We'll see uh, how COVID has may have changed that, that perspective, positively or negatively, we'll see. Uh, but you know, for me, this is, this is a, a really, really great opportunity for the industry. Excellent, and thank you for sharing that. I think that does point the way to the, to the future. So I know we're, uh, we're at the end of the time we have together. Unfortunately, I've really enjoyed the discussion. We've covered so much going from, you know, the future of HMI to the trade-offs between security and usability and then radically new business models and, and how OEMs and the industry as a whole can learn and optimize from other industries and then, and then build those new revenue streams. So perhaps, uh, Frank, if I could just hand the mic back to you and say any closing thoughts. And then critically, I think, uh, given how much you, you, you shared, where, where do people go to learn more if they want to uh, connect with you or, or with uh, Frost and Sullivan afterwards? Well, first of all, and, and you know, this is this is what we do at Frost, and you know, we, as I mentioned, focus on transformational innovation, and this is one of the most fundamental that we we've seen in the industry uh, between that shift for, to electrification, that shift towards uh, connectivity, uh, or autonomous, um, are, are sort of bringing really exciting opportunities, challenges, but opportunities at the flip side of, of any coin, right? Um, but, you know, for, for anyone who would be interested to, to engage and have a, a discussion, they can, of course, reach out to me directly. But there's many colleagues around the, around the globe from North America, Latin America to Asia. We, we are present in, in 40 countries around the world. And, and you know, anyone can, uh, can reach out to, to the local office of Ross & Sullivan uh, looking for our mobility experts and, and we'll be uh, very happy to support, of course. Thank you, Frank. 